there is absolutely no economic incentives for operating the relays. The relays carry very real cost, very real risk, and they carry zero economics. Hey everyone, before we get into it today, just want to give a quick shout out to this season's sponsor, Rook. Close to a billion dollars worth of MEV has been taken out of users' pockets, and that's just on Ethereum, and that number is only getting larger, unfortunately. Rook thinks that it's time for a change, and they've built a solution which is going to automatically redirect that MEV back to where it belongs into your, the user's pocket. So you're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. I'm a huge fan of this team and what they're building, so stay tuned to find out more. All right, Hasu. Um, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, we're going to be talking to Matt Cutler of Block Native. You want to say a couple words about why we're having Matt on and what we want to get out of the conversation? Yeah, so uh, Matt is one of the experts on the uh, MEV supply chain. So I think we're going to um, dig into that with with him. Um, he, Block Native is his company. They also run uh, a, a relay in the MevBoost ecosystem. And um, just to, to give... Uh, our listeners, some context. So on Monday, uh, last Monday, if you're if you're listening to this when the episode comes out, um, there was a major exploit uh, on a relay implementation in the MevBoost ecosystem, and so I think it would be very interesting to dig into this with Matt as well as the implications. And I know he's been a longtime advocate for um, a kind of better incentive design um, at the relay level. Um, so we're gonna talk to him about that. And um, his company, Block Native, is also one of the kind of leaders on uh, ESC4337 uh, account abstraction on, on Ethereum. So um, I personally haven't thought like nearly as deep as him about that. And so it would be very interesting to hear some of his perspectives. This is going to be a, a fascinating conversation. I think the first episode of our, our series was like with Tarun and Justin. It was really interesting setting up some of the higher level, almost philosophical debates around MEV. And in this episode, we're really going to get into the guts of the infrastructure yeah. and how it all works. Yeah. Going to be yeah, good. yeah. This would, the, contrast, uh, the contrast would be great, I think. I agree. I agree. All right, let's get right into it then. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Uh, today, Hasu and I are joined by Matt Cutler, who is the co-founder and CEO at Block Native. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, Michael. Hi, Hasu. How are you? Hey, Matt. Hi, Mike. No complaints. No complaints. It's been a slow, uh, sleepy week in MEV land. <laughs> My little dad joke to show off. Uh, and I think uh, what we want to talk about today, we really want to get into the the guts um, of the infrastructure that supports MEB. So the first, I think, episode of this season was kind of high level and introducing a lot of the sort of philosophical arguments around MEV. And Matt, what I think Hasu and I are very interested in is kind of getting into the guts of how it all actually works. And I think a theme of this conversation is going to be how the infrastructure required to support Ethereum today is actually getting more and more complex, which I think is an interesting theme to kind of dig into. So I'm going to start actually, guys, by just sharing a super simple diagram here that I'm sure many, many folks uh, listening to this podcast will be sort of aware of, but it's just a very helpful uh, sort of basic visualization for the MEB supply chain as it exists today. And I, I think many folks have kind of wrapped their brains around what this looks like today. But what I hope, uh, you know, when we get to the end of this conversation, we're going to realize how this is getting uh, more and more complex by the day. And this is like, you know, not a great uh, actual visualization for what this looks like. So Matt, maybe I can kind of first turn this over to you. I know you have a lot of thoughts around the infrastructure around MEV. Can you kind of just walk listeners through this MEV supply chain uh, diagram that we're showing 
who are each of these individual actors? What are they responsible for doing? And then I'd love to kind of get into the economics of what, um, especially the searchers and builders uh, kind of look like. So this is the, the canonical uh, MEV supply chain. The first time that I saw this was actually in Amsterdam at DevConnect in April of 2022. Um, it was quite an interesting room to be in. Uh, I felt very privileged to, to be there. I was actually a speaker as part of the MEV Day agenda, which was an amazing event. And uh, this introduces uh, this notion that a user has uh, something they want to do uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. To do so, they need to access their EOA via a wallet. So let's say they conduct a, a simple Uniswap trade. Uh, that goes into the public mempool, which is not referenced here. A searcher uh, then sees that, observes that transaction, uh, realizes that this trade uh, has MEV associated with it, whether in the form of a sandwich or in the form of arbitrage. The searcher uh, picks up the transaction and creates one or more response transactions and forms what's known as a bundle. A bundle is a collection of transactions that need to be uh, executed in a very specific sequence in that sequence of the bundle. They then submit the bundle to the builder. And you can see that right there. Uh, the builder's job is to build blocks for the blockchain. So uh, it, Post-merge, there is this notion of PBS, proposer-builder separation, which separates the job of proposing blocks to the network from actually building those blocks. The builder's job is to build the most profitable block possible, um, which includes transactions from the public mempool, private transactions, as well as searcher bundles, as you can see here. Um, builders then compete with each other to build the most profitable block. And the validator, through a couple of mechanisms that aren't uh, shown here, uh, selects the highest bid. They uh, accept the, the block from the builder, and they then go on to propose that to the network. And this supply chain results in a new block being proposed to the network that then becomes truth. Super helpful. Um, so maybe we could kind of zone in on this sort of uh, the tail end here in between the builder and the validator. So we know that one step, uh, you know, around this kind of area of the value chain is a relay. And Block Native, you're an operator of a relay. You guys are also a block builder. Can you get into a little bit more of the detail around what do the economics look like for a relay today? And same question on the on the builder side of things. Sure. So uh, there's a couple of pieces that are not uh, illustrated here in the supply chain that are necessary connective tissue. So the validator runs what's known as a sidecar. Uh, it's an optional piece of software that now I think over 99% of all validators have installed. Um, and today it ranges from about 80 to 90% of all blocks come through MEV Boost. So MEV Boost is this a small piece of software that connects validators to the MEV Boost relay network. And so what relays do is they sit between the validators and the builders, and they basically serve this critical middleman role. And it's a trusted role. It is a, uh, a, a trade-off that was made to bring PBS to the network uh, at the merge, because many of the design questions associated with in protocol or enshrined PBS haven't been answered yet. So uh, what relays do is they accept blocks from builders and, and basically they absorb very large amounts of network traffic because builders uh, build blocks continuously. Um, there's, there's something very important to, to understand about what happens to the left and what happens to the right of this diagram. To the right of this diagram is the chain and the chain is a discrete system. It clicks forward like a watch. Now every 12 seconds, click, click, 
click in perfect synchrony. Okay, it's it's uh, 100% consistent, 100% precise, and it always moves forward. Okay, on the left are the public mempool. It is a continuous flow system. Anyone in the world can submit a transaction at any microsecond, and they do. And so what happens is these two different impedances, a continuous flow system and a discrete flow system, need to get matched up. And they get matched up by builders building blocks continuously. Basically, what they're doing is always collecting the latest transaction information, always trying to recalculate what's going on. And then they pass those blocks on to validators. Sorry, not to validators, to, to the relay. Okay. The relay accepts the block. What the relay is supposed to do, but doesn't always do, is then validate the block to make sure that the block built by the builder um, uh, is valid and can be accepted by the network, validate the bid and all that sort of jazz. This then massively simplifies the, the uh, network and compute challenges of the validator because the validator doesn't need to absorb all this traffic, doesn't need all these builders hammering it with all these blocks that it then needs to validate. All it needs to do is ask these relays Give me your most valuable bid. And I'm going to trust the relay that that's going to be a valid block that I'll be able to accept by the network. Okay. And so what's interesting is there's some subtlety here. There are multiple relays in operation today. At the moment, there are 11 relays that power the Ethereum network, but only seven of them have more than 1% share. And there are actually only six independent operators because there's a specific operator that operates multiple relays today. Okay. And so it's, it's pretty centralized, more centralized than any of us would like. Um, and what happens here is the validator who's running MEV boost can selectively enable one or more relays. Okay. And so the validator can choose which relays they pay attention to. And there's a whole bunch of policies and associated with that. Certain validators say, yeah, there's no risk. I might as well listen to them all. All I'm trying to do is get the, the highest bid. Other validators have specific policies like, I'm a US-based entity. I service uh, institutional clients. I can only accept uh, uh, OFAC SDN compliant blocks. So I will only listen to um, uh, relays which offer that, that capability. They filter out certain sanctioned transactions. Conversely, there's other groups that say the opposite. We don't want any censorship. We want open network access. And so we'll only listen to relays that are non-censoring. And believe it or not, there's weird crosstalk between them. So there's large US entities that only take non-censored transactions. There's global entities that only take censored. And there's it's a lot of complexity in all of this. Now, these relays, without the relays, the network doesn't operate. Okay, meaning that, that the MEV boost network is entirely dependent on them. They require 100% uptime because if they don't do their job, you have missed slots. They require uh, high degrees of network uh, connectivity because they need to be able to accept blocks continuously. They require high degrees of CPU because you have to simulate these blocks and make sure that they're valid and don't contain um, you know, various sorts of bad action transactions. And there is absolutely no economic incentives for operating the relays. The relays carry very real cost, very real risk, and they carry zero economics. And in fact, if your relay doesn't do its job or there's some misconfiguration and you miss slots, the validators often expect reimbursement. So they have negative economics. And so it creates this very um, a significant point of exposure. And then there's something that's quite subtle here, which is uh, at the consensus layer, we care very deeply about uh, uh, client diversity, independent code bases. So if there's a, a bug in any one of these uh, consensus layer clients, the whole network doesn't suffer. Well, today there's only two code bases for relays. The Flashbots relay, which is open source and everybody else runs, and the 
block native dreamboat relay, which block native alone runs. So there are two code bases, but there's only one relay that's operating the, the diverse one. And, and in our experience, actually talking to the validator set, they don't really care about this. This is actually not a determining criteria. And so one of the things we're trying to do is encourage more teams to participate as relays and to either develop their own relays to encourage uh, relay diversity or to adopt the alternate code base, IERs. And again, there's no economic advantage for us in doing so, but these are all factors that create uh, points of exposure in the network. And this week we saw one of those points of exposure uh, get exploited, which is unfortunate. So lots of lots of great uh, information there. And just to maybe sum up, uh, and this is where I'm going to kind of turn it over to Hasu. And Hasu, can I ask you to put your, your Flashbots hat on here? But PBS was a you know, a decision that was made to be uh, enshrined in Ethereum, not yet, right? But it's separating this role of the validator, the proposer, and then builders, right? To avoid um, kind of this MEV dystopia that I think uh, Stefan kind of coined. Now, one solution that we have in, in place now is this relay sort of function, right? Uh, which allows builders to communicate uh, with proposers in a trust minimized sort of way. Now, Matt, what I heard you just say is like, hey, there is this critical bit of off-chain infrastructure that an enormous amount of Ethereum is relying on, and the economics of it kind of suck today, right? You could argue that there's an enormous amount of risk that you're taking on liabilities with not a whole lot of economic upside. So then, you know, you you might rightly be concerned um, about the uh, the sustainability of that long term. Hasu is uh, you, know, in, you know kind of in your capacity as Flashbots is the original. Uh, original sort of relay. Love to get your kind of thoughts on what Matt said there. Yeah, um, I, I think Matt raised the, so first of all, thanks for the explanation of how um, the MEV supply chain works. I think um, the way that I always explain kind of the, the need for, for relays is that MathBoost is a protocol to, to basically broker trust between um, validators and, and block builders. And in, in order kind of to understand the role of the relay from a very high level, we can go back to how things used to work in, in proof of work where, um, the flashboard, there was only one relay, which was the flashboards relay. And it was, it was connected directly to, to the mining pools. And actually, um, the, the relay only sent individual transactions, uh, or individual bundles to the mining pool. And then the mining pool would use these bundles in their own block bedding. And so the mining pool always saw all of the transactions that the searchers were sending to the relay and they were including the best ones using a kind of, uh, local block building algorithm. And uh, this was okay because the, the, the mining pool was seeing the transactions, but the workers in the mining pool were not, they were only hashing, um, the block, the hashed block header that the, the mining pool operator was giving them and then trying to see if they could find the golden nonce, right? And so you had this implicit privacy mechanism um, in proof of work where the workers were not, all of the hash power was not seeing the MEV transactions, which were valuable. Um, and uh, the, the mining pools, pool operators did, but they had a lot at stake. There were only like five or six big mining pools and they all, if one, one of them lost their access to MEV, then that would have been devastating for them. And so you could bet that they are very unlikely to, to, to um, misbehave. Enter proof of stake and this whole formula changes because now all of a sudden you have staking pools, but the role of a staking pool, even though it has the same name, is something that's completely different from the pool and proof of work. The pool and proof of work was the central party that also built the block. Um, and whereas in proof of stake, 
every validator is building their own block locally. And so it's almost like you're dealing now all of a sudden with a million different mining pools. And so who do you trust? Right? And so it's a, it's a really big problem now all of a sudden for the, for the MEV relay to decide who they want to send their transaction to. And um, so um, the answer was basically either um, we find a mechanism. Uh, so I, either we, 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 MEV becomes exclusively available to trusted validators, usually big node operators, um, staking pools, and so on, it, totally excluding solo operators or kind of less trustworthy validators. Or we find a mechanism that um, basically uh, encrypts the transactions um, in, in a way that, that still allows smaller validators to participate in this market. And there's this, this, this trick almost in mechanism design where you can solve almost any problem that you want just by intu magically introducing the, the trusted third party um, that, that kind of <laughs> operates in, in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where the relay comes in, right? Because the, the relay takes these bits from, um, from the builders, that takes the blocks, but then it shows only, same as actually as in proof of work, shows only the, the block header to the validator. And, uh, and then the validator can sign the block header. And after receipt of the, the signature, the relay can then uh, either release the block body or kind of publish the full block to the network. And I think later in the show, we will get into how this exact mechanism broke down um, mm -hmm. and, and caused this exploit to happen uh, two days ago. And that's why I thought it, it's, it's worthy of explaining this from scratch. So, oh, do you want, want to jump in here, Matt? It's worth saying that the relays provide tremendous economic value to the entire network for two very specific reasons. One, the average MEV boost block includes about 22 to 25% more transactions per slot than a vanilla block. So it's using block space more efficiently. And critically, because there's more transactions per block, there's a higher rate of ETH burn via the base fee. And so all ETH holders benefit as a result of the work of the relays, okay? Two, validator rewards are significantly higher through MEV boost blocks. I'm using uh, rated network has a dashboard on this, um, but it's about, you know, the execution rewards are about 272% greater, right? So the validators get paid more. So the security budget goes up. The, the network is, is used more efficiently. The, the base fee burn is increased. There's more deflationary pressure. And so there's huge amount of economic benefit that, that is driven specifically by the work of the relays and the rest of the supply chain. And yet none of that value is today shared with those infrastructure operators, right? And it seems to me like there's certainly opportunities for us to say, well, you're brokering all this value. Like there should be some opportunity to participate in that value. Now there's many ways we could do so. There's lots of debates about that. But to me, as an infrastructure operator, that's a debate I think we should have. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in having that debate. Um, so I think I think there's a few ways to, to start with this. I think... Um, you definitely, I definitely agree with you that relays create um, a lot of value in the MEV supply chain, but I think uh, in some ways also the value is is misunderstood in that um, a relay is not necessary for most participants in the MEV supply chain, right? And that's why I took this a bit like longer answer, showing that um, only untrusted parties would be excluded from the MEV supply chain if relays didn't exist. 
because so let's say you have kind of you have flashbots and you have block native and you have builder 69 and you have jane street whatever you have all of these builders right um and you have lido you have coinbase kraken binance etc all of a sudden you have 90 percent of the builder market 90 percent of the staking market um and these parties all trust each other right there is no need here for a trusted third party and um it's basically when kind of the 10% interacts with the 90% or um, the 10% interacts with the 10%. It's, it's, it's basically the cases where the market structure benefits. Or these are the parties that, that benefit from, uh, from having a relay. And I think, I think it kind of points to, so why, at, so at least in my position um, at Flashbots, I have been critical about um, the possibility of monetizing relays, not because I think um, we don't want to, right? We'd love to make money from this if we thought it was possible, but we are, we are kind of, we are thinking it, it would actually make it more likely that this already kind of fragile market structure, this fragile protocol that is MEF boost, um, would degrade, uh, into something that actually, uh, where more and more parties start to circumvent relays altogether, because as I said, the, re the relay is not necessary for all parties, but because because like some amount of parties need a relay, um, we have almost the social uh, consensus, the social norm that everybody goes through a relay. And that's really important because we want everybody to operate on the same footing. But once we start monetizing relays, I think it, it creates this incentive to circumvent relays for all of the parties who don't need it because that would now increase their, their bottom line. And... Um, so that I have more arguments like in favor and against, but I really, so we can go into them, but I first want to hear like how you would respond to this one, because I think this is for me, it's really the crux of the matter. Sure. So, you know, at the, at the end of the day, right, we want to have a, an openless, trustless and permissionless network that, that anyone can participate in. So we don't want to professionalize uh, the security budget and the staking layer. We want independent stakers to be on equal footing as everybody else. Right. So that seems pretty enshrined to the ecosystem. And, and you know, sort of I don't think anyone's arguing that that's something we want to reconsider. Right. Um, two is today we I will agree that the the. The, the market is fragile, but the market doesn't have very many participants. And there's no incentives really today to increase participation. Okay. So my view of this is what we want is we want lots of relays. We want a lot of people going, look, the economics here is amazing, right? This is a great business to get with to get in. And we can add value here. And so what we want to be seeing is uh, more relays with more diversity um, and more uh, different act, you know, various actors doing it. Today, uh, basically, there's a small set of private entities who are using venture capital money to support the network and a couple of public goods that have passed the hat. And that strikes me as at the, the core of the network, not sustainable and not ideal for a network that basically is trying to, to be able to, to fund its own operations overall. Now, the incentives are, are real, right? So you know, there's this argument of, well, any relay that accepts uh, economics would then just turn around and, and refund it back to their validator set. So um, you know, the, the game theory here is it'll all go to zero anyways. And, and my argument is that's the same thing with block builders today. Block builders can subsidize blocks. And yet there are block builders that take 
profit that that actually take margin from this, right? And so uh, it would again the the mechanisms here I, I think need to be explored. At the end of the day, the idea is there is a trade off between the simple cheap path for validators and staking pools to say, you know what, maybe we could eke out a couple of tenths of a point here, but we're going to destroy that on, you know, the extra overhead that's associated with building these private pathways and doing this stuff ourselves. And you know what, the easy button is just press, use the relay network and, you know, on a temporary basis until in protocol PBS exists and it's totally worth it. And, and we understand why that, uh, uh, absorbing the denial of service attacks, absorbing the network bandwidth, doing all this work is totally fair to have something. So again, maybe I'm being naive about this, but it strikes me that the path that we're on leads to out-of-band incentives or leads to uh, uh, reduced participation and ultimately a high degree of centralization. Okay, let me let me throw a few more arguments at you and, and see how uh, what you have to say about them. So just responding to this one... Um, I think just like following all kind of economics, uh, economic theory. So how how can a builder monetize successfully if they eke out some kind of uh, competitive advantage, right? So, um, and that's what we're seeing. I think in the in the builder market, if if a builder just makes consistently more valuable blocks than other builders, then they can monetize kind of the, the surplus between the two successfully because they they only need to outbid the second best builder. They don't need to bid any kind of absolute highest amount, and so. In the relay market, how they would translate is: can a relay um, can a relay basically differentiate in a way that lets it consistently provide more value to either block builders or to validators? Um, and um, I think so far we haven't really seen that um, that a relay would be able to like in a free market kind of sense, and that's. That is the reason why we are talking about this in the first place, right? That kind of the free the free relay market doesn't really allow for any relay to upgrade its technology in a way that that lets it differentiate itself from the other relays and, and just hence win more customers or provide more value to customers that they'd be willing to pay more. The reason why we are talking about this is because the service they provide is extremely fungible. Um, and hence, we need some kind of social convention on their ability to monetize, right? Uh, so uh, worth noting, there is no economic advantage to operating different consensus layer clients. They all operate the same fungible service. So so why do we have multiple code bases? Why do we have that? Well, the Ethereum Foundation has determined that that's a priority. So this is another way we have this. You know, And again, um, it, it strikes me that there are multiple pathways here that we could pursue that would make... Uh, and my, my point, like, there's two very valid arguments. One is the, the economics degrade, regardless of how you do it. The other is it's not a free service. It's, in fact, a, a very expensive service and a high-risk service. And ultimately, on a long enough timeline, these things are not sustainable. Now, the answer that's often given is in-protocol PBS. Now, honest answer, what's your earliest timeline for in-protocol PBS on mainnet? I think it got it got a lot pulled a lot earlier this week. <laughs> that would be my honest answer. Um, um, so, like, no, I mean, I uh, I think it depends. I think so. If this now became kind of the number one priority for Ethereum for the Ethereum roadmap, but without any kind of emergency uh, timeline, then I'd say eighteen months. Um, if 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 we think we have to fix this because there is now an emergency, we think we can't 
the, the math boost protocol starts to break down, then I think it can be accelerated like a lot faster, like faster than, than a year, I think. Um, so, um, but I want to like, I want to, so I, w I want to say that I really, really agree with you that the, the relay ecosystem today is a public good. So none of my comments in any way were pointing to saying that the relay ecosystem doesn't provide tremendous value to the ecosystem. Uh, in, in fact, kind of, we pay the same cost, uh, as you, you guys do at, at block native, right. For running the, the flashbots relay. Um, and uh, we, we do that because we think it's it's essential to uphold this 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 market structure. And so, um, I think public. I think yeah, we have to basically talk about it from a funding public goods angle, more so than from an angle of how can we turn this into a market that can be monetized successfully uh, in a kind of free market way. Yeah, uh, it, it's worth noting that you know. We, uh, we sit on the same side of the table, and in many ways, Flashbots is is out ahead, right? They've been the champions and architects of this, which is, is an incredible system that that you know is is uh, really helping the entire network move forward. So the the benefits are, again are tremendous, but the flack that comes back, the heat, the argument, like is is it's not very gratifying to be an operator in this role, right? And you know, Hasu makes the point about builder differentiation, and we can talk about this, but some of the earlier episodes was all about latency. And it turns out that a lot of the builder advantage, not all of them, but some of the builder advantage are actually latency games. And so again, it sort of all reduces down to latency games. And the reason why latency games are problematic is it favors uh, the largest, best funded, most sophisticated actors in the ecosystem. And then we're back to where we started. You know, the, the whole grand Ethereum experiment, experiment is to uh, build the foundation for the next economy and to make a fundamentally more equitable system. And if at the core of the system, there's not very much equity built in or there's, you know, incentives that route around that, then that's problematic, right? Um, we as a, as a group were very early advocates for MEV recirculation back to users because fundamentally that's where it starts. We've been really happy to see that um, meme really take off. And now it's sort of the topic right now about how do we create more um, uh, uh, equitable recirculation and the right ways to do so. Um, we're sort of want to get out in front of this issue as well. That that in the the formative stages of Ethereum, you could assume the infrastructure is just like oh we I don't know we use Infura we don't really think about that right. Turns out if you ask Infura, it's a pretty hard job. It's a pretty expensive job right. And and we're now to the state where there's enough economic value flowing through the system that assuming the infrastructure we think is super dangerous. We think it's it's bad for. Um, uh, the participants in the network not to really understand the infrastructure implications, and we think it's um, uh, short-sighted—not short-sighted, but but incomplete—if the incentives don't account for, hey, look, there's um, latency infrastructure advantages here, and unless we're very explicit about creating uh, compelling uh, incentives, then negative incentives and therefore centralizing incentives will emerge, and so. You know, we're starting to see some some traction on these concepts as well, but that's basically wh where we think uh, uh, the next series of debates needs to happen inside the the the, the ecosystem. I think it, I think it's it's an interesting interesting question to what degree that like, the relay la layer should be incentivized. And I, here I have a few more. Like I, we can do like a quick lightning round because I do want to hear what you have to say about the, the rest of these arguments. So, for one, you were saying we want many many relays. And I would say, I don't think it's, I don't think it's so clear that we actually want many relays because 
like having 10 relays is not twice as secure as having five relays. In fact, every relay makes the system more fragile in a sense, because you only need one relay. If, if you're a builder, you only need one relay um, to defect and, and cheat in order to steal your MEV. And if you're a validator, you only need one relay to lie about the validity or the bit size in the block in order um, to steal your MEV from you. So the relay is actually in the position to steal MEV from both participants, right? And so if you have nine honest relays and one dishonest one, then all of a sudden um, he, the whole system breaks down, right? And so um, how do you think about that? Well, you know, you'd mentioned the prior state under proof of work, right? Mm -hmm. So under proof of work, we had thousands of machines that were securing the network, but they were aggregated into a small number of mining pools. And it turns out that the mining pool operators, the ones who determine the block template. And so there were like four or five entities that basically nobody on the network could mention. If you could mention one, you knew Ethermine, you didn't know anybody else. And <laughs> with totally opaque structures, totally opaque governance, totally opaque policies that were basically determining which transactions got in and in what order. And this was widely, and by the way, they were then listening to a single relay, um, uh, MebGeth. And this was widely perceived to be, you know, overly centralizing and, and risky because there were a small number of actors that were able to determine the behavior of the network, right? So enter the merge, enter MevBoost, enter this architecture, which we think is a massive improvement over what came before without question. And yet we're, we're basically going back to where we were before. There's four or five entities that determine what happens, right? They are, they have um, uh, opaque incentives. And, and by opaque, I mean like, there's private investors who fund us who basically say this is a good use of their capital. And at any point may say, yeah, we're not so sure about that. Or maybe, hey, let's figure out some alternate mechanisms to monetize these capabilities. So mm -hmm. if we just think about it objectively from the point of view of the network, um, having a critical dependency on a small number of actors that have uh, uh, independent incentives is not healthy, right? So mm -hmm. on the spectrum of do we want fewer relays or do we want more relays? Do we want fewer participants or more participants? You know, my general tendency is more is better. Now, you're, to your point, each one has to then stand up on its own merits, right? Each one has to then go out. Another risk for relays is you got to go and lobby the validators to say, hey, you should adopt my relay. Here's the policies. Here's why. Yeah. Right. Then you're you have dashboards like the Tornado Watch dashboard that are keeping you honest, right? And mm. you have to go talk to the searchers and say, "Hey, searchers, here's why you should send submit bundles to us." Right. Yeah. And then everybody's sort of pinging each other to figure out what their bids are. So, um, operating a relay requires re real human capital, real you know out of pocket expense, and depending on your jurisdiction, may often real regulatory exposure, and and therefore having a small number of entities and a small number of geographies doing so, not great for the network. Hey guys, quick break from the show here. I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine swapping two stable coins on chain, paying zero dollars in gas, and instead getting a rebate of two thousand dollars. This is something that's actually happened on chain. To understand how, I want to introduce and thank this season's sponsor, Rook. Zooming out for a second, the current state of affairs in MEV is billions of dollars so far have been extracted from users' pockets using MEV. Rook is coming in and saying, enough is enough. Blockchain should drive value to their users and the applications they use. It is time to leave the hobbyist era behind us if we want to move forward and we want to get this right. That's why Rook has built a custom blockchain settlement network, and it's one that gives you full control over the entire transaction lifecycle. Today, you can connect to an open source Rook node. The Rook protocol will automatically match, bundle, and auction your orders and transactions in seconds with zero gas overhead. 
Also, any MEV that's discoverable along the way will be returned to you, the user. Created as a collaboration between the industry's top mechanism designers and MEV engineers, Rook was built from the ground up to be scalable, safe, and programmable. You can get your own mempool, choose searchers and builders, and link your mempool with others to discover even more MEV. You can define how the MEV is shared and delivered as well. And Rook can basically process anything from transactions to meta transactions and more. This is the way that blockchains basically should have been from day one. So if you're a user listening to this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your wallets, go to your favorite app, your node provider and say, hey, I want you to be working with these guys, Rook. I want the MEV that I create to be redistributed back to me. If you're a developer and you want to stay ahead of the game, the best way to do that is to follow them on Twitter. They are at Rook or even better yet, slide into their DMs. They are lightning responsive. They'll get you set up today. And if you do slide into those DMs, as always, please tell them that I sent you. What I want to get into here a little bit is um, some discussion about the builders, because honestly, for me, even going into the season, I think that was the that was a part of this ecosystem that I had the least like when I closed my eyes, it was very difficult to imagine like who those people were and what they were doing. But just to like bookend that last uh, that last section that we were discussing, could you uh, either one of you or maybe Hasu, because you wrote this whole postmortem on the exploit, can you explain what that exploit was that like how that ended up happening, why that was such a big deal. And then we can kind of get into like who the builders are today. What the relays transport from the block builder to the validator is basically this valuable payload that contains the MEV transactions, right? And the way it works in the good case is that the, um, the relay shows the block header to the proposer and then the proposer selects the, the highest block header and, and signs it. And then um, upon receipt of the signature, the, the relay um, reveals the, the block body to the proposer and the proposer can um, then, then publish the full block. The relay also publishes the full block. So both are happening. In this case, um, the relay made, there was, a, there was a, a bug in the relay implementation that caused the relay not to check whether a particular part of the um, uh, the validator signature was actually valid. So what the uh, what the validator did was they 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 sent a signature, but the signature was not valid, and so it didn't make actually a full block. And so the relay couldn't publish the block to the network, where it would then be picked up by other nodes, and in, in the attestation committee, it would receive attestations, and these would give it then weight in the fork trace rule, and this block would get finalized, right? But this is not what happened. So the relay um, couldn't publish the block because the block was not valid, but it still released the block body without checking whether another block was basically already being finalized. And so it gave away this information about the MEV transactions to the proposer. And the proposer had then all of the transactions and they could construct their own block um, and, uh, and steal the MEV. But stealing the MEV was not all that happened here. So if they stole the MEV, then they would have made a couple of maybe like the average average block in 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 MathBoost is like is what is, is 0.2 ETH or something is 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 a small number right not too much yeah so it, that's not what happened um what happened was also that they in the first step they put out very very specifically parameterized traits in very low liquidity uh, uh Uniswap pools that baited very specific uh, sandwich bots to make very, very risky trades. Um, and then they basically took these trades, knowing that they were exploitable to be 
what we call re-sandwiched. Um, and then they basically drained the sandwich bots that way. So it was an attack that was not on a particular builder per se. It was on, on specific, uh, it, it basically Searches. exploited two things, right? Yeah, it basically exploited kind of a vulnerability, if you will, in like the searcher strategy. And it combined this with a vulnerability in the relay, which revealed the block body. And kind of putting these two together, you had this explosive cocktail where um, I think four builders lost collectively, uh, sorry, sorry, four sandwich bots lost collectively around um, $20, 20 million in that transaction. Wow. Two things to add here, right? So uh, the forensics here are pretty interesting. So the relay successfully validated the block signature, which of course it has to do, but there is actually additional fields in the header payload. And in particular, what happened was the parent root and the state root, which are necessary uh, to be certain values in order to propagate the header to the, the, the block to the network were zeroed out. And the relays in this case had not been, were not, the code did not validate every field because the assumption was, why would you do this, right? So this was a, the first example post-merge of a malicious validator, of a, of a validator operating in the network that was specifically trying to exploit. And, and clearly whoever did this, it was well orchestrated. It required some time to set up and test. And, um, they had very deep understanding of how this stuff actually worked and where there were gaps. Okay. And, and again, this is the sort of thing where you say with increased code diversity, might a team who had been building this sort of thought of this and the note, maybe we don't know. Right. Um, but regardless, the, these are the sorts of things that happen when you have small number of, of actors who are responsible for large sets of the network handling lots of value. And you have very clever adversarial actors out there who are looking to gain an advantage. Right. Um, and so on one level, you could say, hey, well played. On the other level, you could say this is kind of gnarly. And, and when we talk about trust assumptions, it's easy to sort of abstract. And I find part of what happens in this world is we have these high level abstractions, like the searchers trust that their bundles are private. They, they expect the relays to, to handle them very carefully. And because of that trust relationship, they can sometimes maybe not be as careful as they should be. Okay. Cause they don't need to be cause there's trust, right? And that trust, when it gets pierced again, in this case, not intentionally, but, but, but accidentally, right. There can be significant economic consequences of that, which is why we all go for trustless permissionless systems, because that reduces the, the likelihood of any of these sorts of situations happening. Matt, I would like to push back on, on one thing that you said. So I agree with everything. I, I disagree with the point you said about relay diversity, because I would argue in this particular case would not actually help because the validator is free to choose um, to basically get the payload from any relay they want. They are not forced to, right, to take the, the payload from the highest paying one. So um, if any relay, and that's, that's, the, that's what I meant earlier, it's why it's not clear that we actually want more relays or relay implementations is because only one of them needs to be malicious or faulty, needs to have some bug it's like one of n security model um, where only if one of them is faulty, you can always like attack the whole system. So uh, uh, there's a social layer here. So, so in this regard, and this is not a criticism by any means um, in this current situation, there are some new things that have, 
come to light, what is the Flashbots team doing? It's proactively alerting all the relay operators, okay? And saying, hey, this is an issue. We've issued some code. You need to upgrade. Now, we who operate Dreamboat, it's different for us because we then have to implement that code ourselves. But this is not some, this is the this notion of there is information sharing among the operators. So in the, in the alternate timeline where there had been many relay um, uh, code producers, perhaps one of those code producers say, hey, I noticed that we're not checking everything here. Hey, everybody, this strikes me as something that's vulnerable. You know, ours is checking, yours should check too. And we all go, oh, good catch. Thanks. And we do that. So, so again, not a, it's, it's just more of the more eyes on the subject, the more people who are thinking about it, the, the more likely um, gaps are likely to be spotted. Okay. And again, you know, hey, just write code that doesn't have bugs. We've been saying that for 60 years now, right? The reality <laughs> is, is this stuff is complicated. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that like, I agree with. The more, the more eyes we have on this, the better. Um, but that, that side, I would still say it's better to have more eyes on the same code base than have more eyes on several code bases simply because this is unlike a consensus system, right? Where we just we just need like 30% of the network to make progress and then the network stays live or whatever. This is actually, if there's five code bases and one of them has, a, has an error, the system is always getting exploited, 100%. Gentlemen, I respect the healthy competition between a couple of relay operators, but I'm also gonna firmly drag us up the value chain here. Um, Mike, Mike this, is, this is an issue that's been debated <laughs> between the Bitcoin and the Ethereum community, actually, for, I think, as long as Ethereum exists. This this yeah. idea of, like, having multiple client implementations versus a single one, this is like the oldest battle lines that no, exist you in know, crypto. You know what? Can I say part of the reason this... Um this whole season has been so fun for me is because I will continuously come across these ideas and think, wow, this is really interesting only to realize this has been heavily debated for, you know, five or six years. And even Hasu sometimes I'm like, Hey, we should talk about this. And you're like, Mike, this has already been talked about. Like This is a, a subject that people have a lot of opinions on, but I think the where maybe I could just interject my own opinion a little bit and maybe from a little bit more of an outsider's point of view is I think, you know, when we're talking about this exploit and who it impacted, Look, there are two ways of, of looking at this. On, on one hand, it's very easy for me to say, hey, the, pe the, the groups that were exploited here are searchers, which are basically just hedge funds, right? And this isn't even the most sympathetic corner of the searcher community, right? These are people that are running sandwich bots. So I don't think anyone, you know, let me play the world's smallest kind of violin here. On the other side of things, Matt, I heard your point about there are certain rules that you'd like in how this system needs to interact, remain trustless. And while I think there's a certain, there's almost like a right way for searchers to lose money, but you don't want them to lose money because they can't trust, right? Once you pass your, the bundles that they assembled to, to builders. Um, but I, I got to ruminate on that and, and try to figure out where I actually come down. But I want, I want to pull us up to, uh, uh, it's kind of the the top of the the supply chain here because there's some really interesting kind of new forces that I think are going to to start pulling on this this supply chain this neat easy to understand supply chain that we've outlined and maybe the very first one of those is the introduction of order flow auctions and the growing influence of wallets over the course of the next couple of years and Matt um, you actually in in our kind of pre call use this this exact term uh, sleeping giants so I'm actually going to show that. <laughs> The next one of my uh, super simple diagrams here, how order flow auctions might change uh, kind of this dynamic that we were looking at before. So this is a slightly different view of the MEB supply chain with kind of the uh, a very simple diagram for how order flow auctions might interact with things here. So Matt, maybe I can kind of call on you first here. Like, 
Talk about why you think the the increasing influence of wallets and, and user preferences is going to be prevalent as a support as a force in the MEV supply chain. And what do we mean when we talk about order flow auctions? Sure. So just real simply, like I always bring it back to the user. So Mike conducts uh, a Uniswap trade via Zapper using his MetaMask or Ledger wallet. Okay. Uh, MEV then results, right? Today, uh, Mike or any of the tools he uses does not is not aware, nor does he consent because there's no mechanism for Mike to, to share his preference, right? There's all these other actors in the network who have these explicit facilities to, sh- to uh, exert and, and specify their preference, right? But today the user's cut out of that. It doesn't seem great. Right. And if we look at sort of the root of MEV, like the reason why MEV exists is because these four actors, the transaction originators, Mike, Uniswap, Zapper and the wallet Mike uses uh, basically conducts a transaction. And so uh, one of the things that is you know, uh, prevalent in the ecosystem today is, hey, could we recirculate this MEV and, and cut folks in you know, to, to participate in the value. The great news is there's now this explosion of proposals. We at Block Native have put forward what we call Wallet Boost. Uh, Flashbots has put forward MevShare, and there are multiple others there. And generally what this does is say, expose the transaction at the intent layer. Right. So the user is intending to do something. And by exposing that intent, searchers can now get access to that earlier in the cycle or exclusive access potentially and say and bid on on these opportunities. And the way that the bidding works is it goes back up the value chain to the user, the wallet, the protocol, the DAP, et cetera. Right. And if we really think about the mechanics of a transaction, the the privileged actor, the actor who sort of has the most control is the wallet. And the sleeping giants are historically the wallets have basically been blind to this. Like sort of the best you could do is configure, you know, flashbots protecting your RPC endpoint to to you know privatize that. But but I always equate that to like anything that expects the user to be smart is generally not a good idea. Like what, you used your MasterCard at the grocery store on Wednesday night? Oh, dude, you just got screwed, right? Everybody knows not to use MasterCard on Wednesday night. Oh, you don't have a, you don't have a visa? Well, then you shouldn't shop on Wednesday nights. Like, no one wants to work that way. No one has that expectation, right? That, that, that you, you aggregate knowledge, you push complexity to the end user. Like, instead, you want to have tooling and applications that are MEV aware or even infrastructure that's MEV aware. Um, and I think we're seeing all of that happen. But to answer your question, OFA order flow auctions is, hey, see the transactions early, bid on them, push value up chain. And there's a bunch of uh, action that's happening there. And, and Flashbots is at the center of all of that as well. Hasu, any any commentary there? I know this is this is kind of an idea that we're very keen on exploring for this this whole season. So I'd love to actually just kind of ask you on, on air and, and give your perspective for the audience here. Like, what are your sort of thoughts about this, um, you know, the introduction of order flow auctions? I mean, I, I think... Um... It's an extremely fascinating development, one that has been long in the making. I, I agree with Matt. So one of my main surprises is that basically the, the these other quote unquote sleeping giants, they haven't like woken up earlier to this because there are a lot of ways to mitigate MEV at the application layer. So uh, aggregators, for example, hardly expose any MEV, right? Um, but the thing is, for it's not clear to users necessarily that they are creating MEV. And so they they are not using DEX aggregators as their default, right? They prefer kind of the brand that they trust, which is maybe Uniswap or some other exchange, um, where they are exposed to to more MEV. I mean, Uniswap itself could have done more, a, a lot more to 
protect their users against MEV, just in terms of setting dynamic slippage limits in their front end based on the pool you trade in and whatnot, right? There's like a huge bucket list of things that could have been done that haven't been done. Um, but I, if I had to guess, then I, I think Uniswap V4, if, uh, if it comes out, um, would probably uh, address some of these things on, on kind of the user side, right? Um, now, I think what makes order flow uh, auctions very interesting, I think the problem of, of MEV, um, it, kind of in, a, in the most simple way, it, 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 it's almost like a second transaction fee, right? And so already as a user, if you had the ability to, to kind of set a negative transaction fee, then you'd be in many cases able to internalize the MEV yourself just through the, all of the existing infrastructure. Right, so we don't have we don't have that capability, but that would that would be one of the ways of doing it. Um, another way would basically be that you show what what both um, uh, flashbots and, and block native want to do it is to show the transaction to um, to a market of searchers who can then add their own background, and then they get bundled together and sent to different block builders, and that's how you kind of achieve the same thing. Um, just that the the in the one case, you basically pay less for your transaction. Uh, and in the other case, you basically get rebated the amount. But there's, yeah, so I think it, w what it points to is there's a bunch of different ways of doing uh, order flow auctions. Uh, we haven't touched nearly on the whole design space yet, but um, I think there's a big design space. And I think it's 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 going to be something that's um, that's going to be very, very interesting in the next six months. And it's worth noting that we're collaborating on this stuff. So this is not, there's not, people are dogfighting for the right way to do this. It's like, hey, let's make it easy for the ecosystem to have one set of standards to to apply to. And we're trying to reconcile all the different, all the, these various approaches. Um, but it's interesting to consider if we look at the total value of MEV and the sources of it, it can be reduced down to a handful of wallets and a handful of protocols. And it, there is already evidence that some of these entities are moving to internalize that. So, you know, I, I have no foreknowledge of Uniswap, but Uniswap built their own wallet, right? And so now Uniswap is taking control potentially over more of the supply chain and therefore could, you know, imagine Uniswap as a builder, imagine Uniswap as a relay. Again, not suggesting that that's what's happening. I have no knowledge of that. But suddenly you go, oh, there's this whole section of the MEV the, the actual economic value that gets cleaved off and internalized to that system. And how do we feel about that? Is that good or bad? And this is when I talk about um, uh, out of band economics and, and centralizing forces, these are the sorts of things you go, huh, that's, that's, that's a little maybe concerning. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I, I would love to, this is my kind of mental model for this. Uh, I before getting into crypto, actually, I was a I was a consultant, and our sort of specialty was steel. And I got way deeper into the weeds than I would ever want to or need to revisit on how the steel supply chain work for someone like uh, you know GM who's building a car. And you know, sim similar to that very simple kind of diagram, you can almost imagine like a mill who actually produces the raw material steel at the at the base of the at the base of the uh, supply chain then there are service centers that kind of cut up these enormous you know coils of steel and then there's um you know these kind of tier 1 tier 2 tier 3 where maybe you take a more manageable block of steel you mold it into the shape of a car or a car door then there's someone who puts the electronics and the window on that car door and then the OEM basically is assembling like five or 10 large parts at the end of that chain and there was always constant competition in between who is exerting uh, leverage over that supply chain. 
And there were different parts. I, you know, you kind of get that basic understanding of how the chain works, but then you look at individual ones and, oh, there are some mills that also have their own service centers. And there are some, uh, you know, tiers that kind of have like, they will make the car door and the electronics and the window. And it's just not as simple as you might otherwise think. And there's constantly, you're trying to pass like commodity price risk across the different parts of the value chains through contracts. You're constantly trying to negotiate like, hey, I understand what your margin is. That's like way too much. So when I hear all of this, my mental model and framework for this is, wow, there's going to be an actor at the top of the, the value chain either through wallets or returning MEV to users, that's going to suck some of this MEV that was being generated away from searchers, builders, um, validators, and potentially relays if they end up charging. Is that the right mental model? Should we be expecting some of the MEV that was gener- that was kind of allocated to this bottom portion of the value chain to be moving up? You know, I think I think you have exactly the right mental model. So the, the my mental model for competition is... In the most simple way, basically, you have this profit pool that's that's being generated by by users kind of using the chain, and um, and then you you have all of this everybody down on the supply chain kind of in this industry, and they are all sharing the same pool. But everybody is kind of at at the mercy of of the user, right? And you have you have in the supply chain you have different parties that are all kind of powerful in their own way, and usually powerful means they are kind of what there's a lot of concentration at that particular step. Uh, so, for example, the, in the PC uh, industry, right, uh, Intel and Windows are kind of capturing, they used to capture like 95% of the profit, even though they, a lot of other components go into making a PC. It's just because they they were kind of, they were dominating their respective step in the supply chain, right? And so it's very similar, actually, in, in MEV and in, and in crypto, where you have MetaMask, MetaMask has, what, 80% market share, in the wallet in the wallet market and Uniswap Uniswap has 80% market share in um, in uh, the exchange market and it gets very very hard to I think for anyone else to compete with these two giants in the room right um, so as a, as a smaller player I think you're basically at the mercy of uh, of what these major players are doing um, and um, they have a lot of leverage also over the user right? because the, the user has a lot of inertia as we know. So I, and that's why it's very so important what you said earlier, right? the, the kind of the smart users, the smartest, most sophisticated users are already using DEX aggregators or using kind of rpc.flashbots.net uh, or whatever, right? They, they, they know how to protect, protect themselves. It's kind of the users who are not as sophisticated, who, who are kind of inert, um, who lose all of this MEV. And, um, and yeah, they are kind of the users who basically just follow the default that their wallet gives them or the default that the exchange gives them. And, and so this this equips uh, these participants in the supply chain with a lot of power. Uh, I would agree. I think this, the, the, the metaphor is an apt metaphor. And it's worth noting in the area of the Model T, you'd have raw iron ore come into a, a Ford factory and you'd get a, a car that comes out the other end. And you know, this idea, this totally vertically integrated thing could control quality, but at the end of the day, proved to be wildly inefficient, right? And so I think one of the things that we as an ecosystem sort of strive for is modularity and, and competition at each stage. But again, this requires adequate incentives at each stage. And the issue here is there's relatively low marginal cost for a sophisticated, well-resourced actor to vertically integrate top to bottom. And we're already seeing evidence of that. And so, again, this is this whole MEV dystopia meme of like recreating Citadel. 
And so um, I think there are some you know, real risks here. Now, there's countervailing forces. Along comes account abstraction in 4337. And, and I think the, the subtext to all of this is today the, the user base is relatively small. We want to onboard the next billion users. In order to do so, it's got to be a lot easier to use and it's got to be perceived as equitable, right? If users are like, I don't use that because they steal from me or because I don't really know what's going to happen. It's probably going to depress uh, user adoption. Well, 4337 opens up all sorts of new possibilities for traditional actors to now get involved here, right? And those traditional actors are also quite aware of the MEV game and what's going on there. So, you know, while it can look like the, the micro environment that we're in right now is sort of tied in a knot, as we pick our head up and look down the 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 roadmap, it, it starts to open up quite a bit. But with each new thing that we add in, it adds complexity. And I think this is, again, one of my messages to the ecosystem is don't assume the infrastructure. Do consider the incentives here because these incentives need to be ecosystem aligned at 4337 and at 4844 and as you go down the line. And so anyways, that's that's the, the, the drum that we're continue to beat here. Super important. And for me, I'm just going to try to introduce mental models for how I think about this stuff. But for me, like complexity ends up being kind of a tax. And you could even imagine something like the tax code of the United States. I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, pay a complicated set of taxes, it's basically impossible to do yourself. And in order to interact with that layer of the system, you basically need an accountant or middleman to just explain to you all these complicated rules It ends up being. So that's why wealthy people in the US ultimately end up paying less tax than non wealthy people a lot of the time. Now, Matt, you brought up a account or um four three three seven account abstraction, and that adds that's this is the last of my my diagrams that I'm going to show you here, uh, and this actually comes Matt from your own thread that you tweeted out, but it was the most helpful diagram that I've seen so far on this exact issue, and I'm hoping that you can explain this. So, um, this is going to be for those of you who aren't following along via video, uh, we're kind of looking at a simplified version of the chain that we've been referencing this entire time. And then what we're looking at is inside, uh, in between like the user and the EOA that Ethereum had just assumed before. So Matt, can you explain 4337? Just give us like a kind of a, a super quick high level TLDR and what account abstraction is. And then let's get into the, the MEV implications of that. At a simple level, account abstraction makes wallets and their transactions more expressive and more programmable. So today, uh, to do a transaction in what's known as an EOA, it's it's pretty narrow in terms of what you can do and, and, and what those things can be, and also puts a lot of pressure on the user to manage private keys. Okay, um, What account abstraction does is sort of open this universe up quite a bit and, and make uh, wallets uh, and, and accounts just more abstract, so you could do more and different things with them. Now, I was very challenged to wrap my mind around this. I was reading all this stuff on 4337. I just couldn't picture a mental model. I went up reaching out to a bunch of friends in the ecosystem smarter than me, and they all said the same thing. They didn't have a good mental model. And so we sort of realized that, that a lot of folks in the ecosystem didn't have one, and maybe we should try to develop one. The big unlock to me was that you have a signed transaction today with an EOA, and in 4337, you have a signed transaction as well. But you introduce this new actor known as a bundler that acts as an EOA proxy. So they basically sign the transactions on your behalf. Oh, so now what the realization is, what 4337 and account abstraction does is introduce this new layer. And, and I call it the user intent layer. There's this word intent is a little bit overloaded now. But basically, it's this uh, pre-chain layer 
where users can express their what they want their smart contract wallet to do. They use this using a 4337 wallet. They create these pseudo transactions called user ops. And very curiously, they submit those user ops to what's known as the alt mempool. So today, Ethereum has a public mempool, which is shared, quote unquote, among all the nodes of the network. Now we're going to introduce an additional mempool. That's a brand new construct. And though it's called the alt mempool, it really should be alt mempools because there can be an arbitrary number of these. So now you're going to have these issues of mempool fragmentation. You're going to have issues associated with various rules for, for all of that. Now, the alt mempools contain these user intents. The bundler basically acts a lot like a block builder. What they do is they take these user ops, which are the intent. They uh, put them together into what's known as a bundle. They sign that bundle and then they submit it either directly to the public mempool or privately to a builder. And because uh, this pattern of take the CPU, take the network, take the storage, put it out of band, Bring it, give it to a third party, incentivize them, right? This pattern is now repeating. We had it with builders, we have it with bundlers, and there is speculation that many of the builders will become bundlers, right? And again, here's another example of supply chain integration, right? Uh, same things. But the net net of all of this is uh, it it's an upgrade to Ethereum user experience without requiring a hard fork. It opens up wallets to do all sorts of new and interesting things like social account recovery, like gas sponsorship, like uh, being able to use any token to, to pay for gas, to do multi-part transactions like a, an approve and a swap at the same time. Um, but it does so in this relatively clever way by creating this new intent layer. That's a, a very quick overview, which uh, is hopefully explained here in this diagram, which you can find on my Twitter feed. Yeah. Matt, that was that was super helpful. So, you know, one of the one of the things that immediately kind of jumps out to me. First of all, there's the introduction of a new set of actors, right? There, there are bundlers here. Uh, so, I have some questions about who those people, what those people actually look like in practice, and if you see builders end up being bundlers. But even before we get to that, you know, it occurs to me maybe this is just the way that you've laid out the diagram. But the, all of this stuff happens almost before, right at the start of where. The supply chain started before. So, you know, the first question that I kind of have for you here is, does this introduce the opportunity for more front running somehow? Quite possibly, right? So before we talked about OFAs, right? And now here we have user intents. So I'm intending to do a trade. That trade is going to imbalance a pool, right? So now bundlers will have access to MEV opportunities at the intent layer. And this may be one of the motivations for being a bundler and why you may have bundler searcher integration, right? Um, et cetera. I'm sure Hasu has a POV on this. Actually, not as much of a POV on this. I, I mean, I, I would resonate with everything that you said. Um, I, I kind of have a relatively superficial understanding of uh, ESC 457, but it, it seems very logical that all of block builders will take the role of being bundlers. Um, and this is basically a, another role that, that the builders have to take on. And um, so instead of having kind of uh, a builder centralization, we now also have to kind of think of, about like bundler centralization, like what, what will bundling as, a, as a, an additional job for, uh, for builders do to the builder market? Like, does this introduce more centralization? Do we now need to make sure? So be, because, for example, we're talking about this problem of exclusive order flow. Um, which is if a builder has access to more order flow than other builders, then they can use this to make more valuable blocks and they can use this to get access to more order flow in a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. And so um, 
what I've heard a lot of times is that it can be many, many mempools now and uh, users can decide where they send their user ops. And this immediately kind of made my exclusive order flow alarm bells uh, go Stop. off because um, if, if, if kind of the user ops are not widely available to different builders, then all of a sudden you kind of have almost a supercharged version of exclusive order flow. And so I'm very curious, Matt, how you think about this intersection of, uh, of user ops and, and bundling and, and kind of build a centralization. So we, we're thinking quite deeply on this and we at Block Native have been publishing quite a bit on 4337. Um, I think the simple answer is it's too early to tell how this market's going to evolve. Um, there is a very high degree of interest in, in all things 4337. So I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation there. Um, I, I was recently quoted in an, in an article in Cointelegraph saying like, Look, while anyone could could be a bundler, um, there are open source bundler uh, code out there. It requires a fairly high degree of specialization. You know, you need to bring a bunch of CPU, you need to bring a bunch of network, you need to bring a bunch of, of storage, you need to bring a bunch of relationships, which again, your, your average independent actor is probably not going to have, right? As opposed to, hey, I have 32 ETH, I want to set up a, a staking rig, totally fine but to you, do so. The builder has so, all of that, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so again, builders who have okay to marginal economics today, you look across and you say, oh, we can reuse our existing capabilities in this new area. We can layer on another game that we play. That's great, right? So it would it strikes me that the game is going, these games are going to get more complex, but also there's, again, this pattern, right? By the way, the same pattern is going to exist in 4844 with data availability sampling, right? Like, what are the economics of being a data provider in a post-4844 world, right? Because yeah. The builders are going to have a lot of the data because they already need to do that already. By the way, side note on all of this, um, mempools are by definition ephemeral. There is no record of that. We at Block Native archive everything. We've actually archived the entire Ethereum uh, uh, public mempool for three plus years now. And we're working right now to open source this for research purposes because we believe it's in the ecosystem's best interest that this be a public good so that researchers can understand these games that are happening. And so there's a bunch of effort underway right now to, to contribute this to the ecosystem in, in an organized fashion, um, largely because you know more visibility here is going to be better than, than less visibility. I want to say that's that's really awesome. I didn't know about that yet. So super it's cool not public now. yet. We're, we're working towards it. Um, uh, hopefully we'll have more to share coming up. But again, as part of being a, a positive contributor to the ecosystem. But, but let me just give you sort of a, a timeline that we think a lot about, which is credit card issuers now can turn your credit card into an Ethereum wallet, a 4337 wallet. And you can use your credit card. You can use your points balance to pay your gas fees. Okay. And you as a user, when you're trying to get your Ticketmaster thing, you could get your NFT and have it on your credit card, all brokered via 4337, you know, uh, uh, stuff, right? With, with credit card issuers basically driving massive influx of new users who aren't even aware they're using Ethereum, who aren't even aware of this stuff. They just know like, oh, my ticket's on my credit card. It's super secure. I can move it around. There's no ambiguity like I have via StubHub, right? Like this world is coming and coming rapidly, okay? This is going to be highly constructive to the network in terms of influx of new users, we believe. But now we're going to have entirely new actors who come from a different ecosystem who are going to have different incentives, right? And so how are these 
uh, uh, games set up? How is it, how are these roles set up to facilitate that in a way which is not massively centralizing? This is the stuff that we're spending a lot of calories on at BlockNet. Matt, yeah, super well said. And you know, the more I dig into account abstraction and what four three three seven solves, I think it solves some of the foundational roadblocks that have kept a lot of people out of crypto thus far. Um, so I, I kind of think it's this entirely new force that's really going to change. I, I think it has the opportunity to onboard a whole lot of people. And, uh, you know, rather than than speculate uh, kind of wildly here, but, I, you know, I hadn't even thought of, of that entire possibility. So there's a lot to, to ponder. And Hasu, you and I can kind of unpack that throughout the, the course of the season. Maybe we can get Visa to do that because... I just read, it's funny, I read Visa's, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the company history of, of Visa and their original vision actually was kind of this payment. So not about, it's not about credit at all. It's about creating a payment network that can tap into any source of wave that you have, no matter what it is. And it kind of interchanges between them um, in an extremely seamless way. The history of Visa is worth digging into. It's a fascinating company, but I'm of a certain vintage where I remember when credit cards, you used to put it like a piece of carbon paper and you'd go, and you'd basically imprint. So the thing is, is credit cards have raised numbers for that. And the reason for that was a usability thing, because before that you would write it out by hand, took time and was error prone. So Visa, actually the, the earlier versions of it, basically developed this like, oh, we can process people who are standing in line faster if we raise and we provide this little machine, and then I can move customers through and I have a lower error rate, right? That pattern, Visa embracing a usability improvements to streamline payment is like over and over and over again. Today, what do I do? I use my watch, tap, tap, takes like millisecond, right? And so I think that these sorts of innovations in our ecosystem make this world a lot more familiar to some of these actors, right? And uh, there's some really smart people at, at many of these organizations who I think would be happy to share their perspectives. Guys, maybe maybe closing question for you here. Let's take this um, sort of bright future, right, where people can you know use their Visa cards to do a lot of the stuff in uh, the transactions in crypto today. I have a feeling that might be the point where regulators start to get a little bit more involved in how MEV works, like you'd have to imagine, right? If people are, you know, spending, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars on their Visa cards every year, and that's being settled through crypto networks, I feel like that's the point where I'm actually not sure. I should know probably what regulatory body would would really care about that. Definitely, the SEC cares a lot about like best execution and and stuff like that. So maybe just to 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 end this as maybe kind of a hypothetical, let's say, Matt, what you just described ends up happening during kind of the next cycle, right? Where Visa through uh, 4337 basically opens up this entirely new world of being able to buy things on chain with your credit card. I mean, how do you how do you envision sort of the increasing uh, presence of regulation in crypto impacting everything that we've just talked about? Well, so uh, it's an interesting uh, uh situation to ponder these entities, and I won't speak to Visa specifically, credit card issues are already money service businesses. They're already highly regulated entities all the way around the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they can say, this is familiar to us, A. So there's this big barrier. So like, are the crypto companies going to figure out regulation or are the regulated entities going to figure out crypto? That's the race, right? One. Two, these very large actors, and, and it's worth noting, Visa is the largest financial service company by market cap by a lot. Uh, 
If you actually look that up, it's shocking. It's just sort of how large of an entity that is. They can help shape the regulatory environment. They're, they're a different class of actor. And so it might be quite constructive for us where we go, hey, finally, we have the intention of these, of these large players who can create a more rational um, uh, regulatory environment that we all can participate in. Um, I tend to be optimistic about these sorts of things and, and know some of the folks at various of these entities and believe that they're generally beneficial actors. Um, but I think that's one of the big debates that's going to be happening and one of the big battlegrounds to follow. Um, I will say that the, the mainstreaming of all of this will be net constructive for the ecosystem, but there'll be a bunch of interesting arguments that happen along the way. Figuring out the regulation is always is extremely difficult because you never know what's going to happen. I, I think Visa is already testing. In fact, I was just Googling on the side. They, they have been testing already payments on USDC on Ethereum for a while. And so I wasn't even thinking about that when I brought in Visa, but it seems like a very factual, a very like actual example. Um, uh, yeah, given that development. And I, I think I want to also say that like account abstraction is so much more than just paying, like gas sponsoring paying stuff in another area. I think the most underrated aspect is probably security. So I think it's, it's just, um, the, the, one of the biggest frictions about more people coming into crypto is, is basically the risk of losing funds or making some of their wallet inaccessible to them. And, um, that's why to everybody who I bring into crypto, I always advise using Argent or some other one knows safe, right? Um, and I think this is something that, that, that account abstraction also provides just the ability to have smart contract wallets, um, where you have a native way of recovering your key. And that could even be through a service where, for example, you, uh, you use like a centralized service that you trust, uh, to recover your key, but they can't steal your key or something. Right. So there's all kinds of schemes here. And, um, yeah, it's, I think I really agree with Matt. I mean, this, uh, really has the. This idea of account abstraction really has the potential to supercharge um, the user experience of crypto in a way that no other proposal has has done over the last four to five years. There's there's a closing comment I want to add here, which is MEV is unavoidable, right? Like we wish we could just sort of scrub it away, and and the truth is is that MEV is everywhere. Right. The original sin that, that we have suffered in Web3 is that it's open and exposed that MEV, when it's controlled by a private actor, is OK. Right. And that is SEO. Right. We all understand that search engine ranking, the first ranking is more valuable than the 15th. We all understand there's games you play to, to get ranked higher. And we don't really begrudge Google for for. Uh, managing that whole process. I mean, now we're beginning to, but like, it's okay as long as it's private, right? I mentioned Ticketmaster before. We all understand that the later we call for concert tickets, the worse tickets we get, right? And the earlier you get, the sooner you get, right? And as long as Ticketmaster manages that, eh, it's okay. Um, you know, it's true of airline landings, you know, runways during bad weather, right? The 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 airlines that rent the most gates, right? They get preferential treatment when they need landing rights, right? That's why if you live in the Bay Area, like I do, you fly United. Why? Because when the weather gets gnarly here, which it often does, they're more likely to take off and land, right? And so there's all of these examples of preferential ordering and extracting value as a result in the regular world. What's different here is that it's open and exposed and transparent, which we would say is, is better, but it creates all sorts of new levels of scrutiny. And so as we go forward, um, as we onboard new users, as we create new Capabilities. The MEV is going to be here, right? And it's going to be transparent as well, whether it's transparent as it's happening or it's transparent after the fact. And I think the opportunity that we all have is to 
um, create uh, incentives for all the actors to make sure that that the system we wind up with is both decentralized, not prone to regulatory capture, and as equitable as we can possibly make it. So that's the exciting part of participating in the space. Well said, Matt. You know, it's funny. Out of uh, we're three for three now on referencing Google as a uh, as a, as a source of real life MEV and. Uh, I, the Ticketmaster example is also funny. I, I've never told you guys, maybe this is a good time to reveal. I was at one point a very poor searcher on uh, Ticketmaster and actually have lost some money <laughs> trying to. <laughs> wow. uh, yeah. Uh, my my co-founder, Jason, he actually, um, I always joke that he, he dragged me into some bad uh, investments pre-Blockworks, but there was at one time a uh, Jerry Seinfeld concert in Manitoba. That was a sure thing if you bought these tickets um, that you could flip them for at least 2x. I didn't flip one of those tickets. I lost. A, I, lost I took a bath. Uh, so anyway, that was the end of my did, own. Did, did, uh, you go, did, did you go in a tent though? I think that's the most no. interesting question. It, no. was, it was. It was February in Manitoba. <laughs> I couldn't get. I couldn't. I couldn't get Seems anyone like to go with to me. me. <laughs> uh, all right, gentlemen. Uh, this has been a super fun conversation. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for coming on and joining Haas with me. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm, I'm Adam Cutler. You can find us at Block Native. And uh, if you're attending any of the major Ethereum events, I'm usually there. Please do come up and say hello. I love to, to engage in this stuff, as you can tell. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, Hasu. Excellent episode, too. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation with Matt. I'd never met, uh, I've ne I'd never met Matt face-to-face. -face, so this, this is actually the first time that we talked uh, via video chat. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I was loving the energy. I, um, I think we had a great back and forth there on, uh, kind of relay on relays and, uh, um, monetization in the relay market and, and later on, on account abstraction. And yeah, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the conversation with him. Let, let's focus on, on that, that sort of back and forth you two had over the economics that support relays because, Man, this was just, uh, I love these sorts of debates because I don't think there's any one right answer. And man, I can really see both sides of the equation, right? And if I'm summing this up correctly, your point is basically like, look, relays support that like if we, if, if we didn't want to rely on just like big centralized trusted parties, we wouldn't necessarily need relays there, right? There's like the Jane streets of the world can talk to the big, uh, you know, staking pool operators, and then we wouldn't even need the relays. To begin with, the reason we have relays is because we want those small individual kind of stakers to have the same opportunities that the big centralized guys do. And if you were to charge for your relay, you would defeat the entire purpose of that. On the other hand, I totally understood where Matt was coming from as well. An enormous part of how Ethereum works today is based off of the work of off-chain entities. And right now, there are no economics to support it. Yeah, I mean, he, he has a totally valid point. That's the, that's the thing. And kind of this discussion about relay monetization, there's no clear right or wrong answer. Uh, there are, there are parties in the MEV supply chain. So validators and builders who, who basically need a relay so they can even talk to each other. Right. And you could definitely monetize a relay that, that does that. But the, the problem is kind of if all relays monetize, uh, if then just like, the the participants who don't need relays will start to circumvent them, right. and um, and as long as so as long as there are relays, and that's why relays can't monetize. And as long as some relays don't monetize, no relay can monetize because the service they provide is kind of fungible, right? That's kind of the line of argument, the main line of argument for why it's basically an impossible in a free market way to monetize. Nonetheless, it's kind of we had this back and forth. They they do provide this very valuable service. Um, and there, there is a reason 
that we want all all of MacBooks to go through relays, even though it wouldn't be technically necessary, which is just we want everybody to operate, all builders and validators to operate on kind of the same latency, right? And so if some builders could talk directly to validators and vice versa and didn't have to go through relays, that would give them a distinct advantage. And that's not something that we want to enshrine, right? And that's why we think having relays is better than not having relays or kind of having having relays as a mandatory role is, is better than having relays as an optional role um, in terms of the, the monetization. Then we had these other arguments. I thought the security back and forth was really interesting, right? Because I think the, the point on how many relays should there be and how many relay implementations should there be is very nuanced um, because it's not as straightforward as saying that having more relays makes the system more secure because you only need one relay to be broken or to cheat um, in order for the whole system to, to break down in, in that case, right? Um, of course, that relay can then be kind of removed from the rotation, um, but it's, it's, very, it's very tricky, I would say. Well, one idea that I'd like to, you know, I found myself thinking when you guys were having this discussion was, I wonder if some of this couldn't be solved by kind of this, again, going back on this idea of fee preference in which like maybe there's another way to monetize the role of being a relayer without just charging, you know, like a per transaction, the amount of transactions that flow through the relay, for instance. So like, let me like to give you an example, like Google, right? Like one way, assuming that the payments infrastructure supported it, you could think about monetizing Google is I'm just going to charge people who want to make searches, right? Maybe I'll charge one cent for each search. But because of the way their business model was structured, they, you know, they wanted to get a whole bunch of market share and they wanted to get all these people searching and improve the product. So they didn't charge, but they found some other way of monetizing, which was through ads. And like one idea I kind of found myself, and this is, this happens all across financial markets. Like the example that we talked about, like Fidelity as a, as a brokerage, they no longer charge $5 fees. So they're having to change to all these other uh, business models behind the scenes. And one thing I just found myself wondering was, is there another way that you could monetize your role as a relayer that isn't just charging for the amount of transactions that flow through it? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I hear you, but I, I just can't imagine anyway because because you're dealing with highly rational actors here, the validators and the validators maybe to a lesser degree because they are also interested. They, they do make trade-offs uh, if it's about making the network more decentralized. We saw that with well, that us uh, adopting relays that are non-censoring, but they pay less, right? So yeah. that was interesting. Um, but on the builder side, definitely, builders are not making any trade-offs here. I think most parties in the supply chain are highly rational, and it doesn't matter how you package a fee. I think it's always going to be felt at the end of the day by these actors because they don't care about any th any dimension other than price. And so it's I think that, that makes it very very hard. Yeah. Might be absolutely right. Uh, that's why I was just, you know, considering trying to see if there's another angle there, way to solve it. Um, One of our co-founders of Flashbots, uh, Phil Day, and he, he actually, we, we're going to have on later this, uh, this season, maybe. Um, so <laughs> don't don't want to say too much, but um, he, he actually makes another point. I'm curious what you think about it. But but his, mm. he has another argument um, against taking a fee at the relay level, which is uh, he doesn't want to enshrine the relay as a commercial role, because I think that's, that's, that's 
the relay market is very interesting in the sense that we want relays to be this time-bounded role that should eventually be replaced by an in-protocol solution. And if you make relays, if you had a way to make relays profitable, yeah, you could kind of boost their number and their professionalism now, but what does it, like, what happens when it's time for them to, like, to go. disappear? Do they go do they go gently into the into the night into or the night. is it <laughs> <laughs> or is it is it more of it like miners um when at the merge etc right so i think um you never want uh to become dependent on someone who has this commercial interest on on their you know continued existence i have to think about that but that sounds pretty compelling actually i do sort of understand that yeah one aspect that i wanted to you know, we haven't, I haven't ever actually asked your opinion on public goods. And uh, I kind of have some thoughts about this, but it's, it's an idea that you hear a lot in, in crypto, and I would say particularly the Ethereum ecosystem. And um, oftentimes, maybe to take a little bit of a cynical or slightly less charitable version of this idea, oftentimes, when you're facing a problem of mechanism design, or when the economics of a particular subset of the infrastructure might lead to an outcome that you don't like, there's this kind of tendency to say, well, let's just make it a public good. And if I was really putting my cynical hat on underneath that, part of the reason that that really works is because there are these gigantic foundations, right? Like that have an enormous amount of the token supply and they can kind of be this actor in the space that says, just be a public good. Don't worry about your economics. We will help you with the economics. Um, and forgetting like kind of free market versus, uh, kind of centrally planned, uh, thinking behind, like not even approaching it from that angle. You know, sometimes I, I just kind of end up thinking to myself like that will work for a little bit, but eventually, you know, those funds run out. So I, I never really asked you like, what are your kind of thoughts about public goods in general? What are my thoughts on public goods in general? Well, I think you have to start at the very high level, right? Because there are in crypto, there are a lot of like libertarian or kind of ultra liberals, right. Who, mm -hmm. who, who would say there's no such thing as a public good, right. Everybody mm -hmm. that should, ex everything that should exist, the, the free market will find a way to fund it. And I, I think that's definitely not the case. Um, there's many, many examples for things that are not excludable. Right. And, um, and where there's simply no, no way kind of to, to build them in a, in a for-profit way, but that are nonetheless extremely valuable. And, um, I, I think that's one of the, if I had, if I had to like, I, the way I think kind of about government in general is it should do like at least three things. One is like, um, create the foundation for orderly markets. One is the other is to two to fund public goods and three is kind of to put a price on negative externalities. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my very high level mental model. And so I, in Ethereum, um, the closest thing we have to, to a government is, is maybe the Ethereum foundation, although we mm -hmm. have some other, other players here, like, like Gitcoin consensus does a lot of public goods work. Um, and so we at Flashboards do, do, uh, a lot in, in the MEV supply chain specifically. Right. And so we, we, we do have yeah. players who do public goods and it's great that we kind of instilled, and I think it, it's very much due to like Vitalik's focus on public goods and the EF's focus on public goods, but we were able almost to this, to instill this uh, expectation in a lot of projects that uh, if you're in crypto and you 
you make you make money in crypto, then you have this responsibility of giving back to the ecosystem, give back to public goods funding, which is amazing. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's um, that is really important. Um, in the MEV supply chain specifically, <clears throat> so we often get asked at, at Flashbots why why is this like a, why does this have to be a for profit company? And the answer that we we always give is is that the MEV MEV space is so has so much money gushing around. There's so overwhelming kind of financial incentives that if you're if you're kind of uh, a firm that that relies on um, being funded as a public good that relies on donations in order to build the market structure, then you you're ultimately not going to be able to compete with these players who are for profit just because there is so much profit, right? And so you basically get get crowded out or you, you get gobbled up, right? To the point where you rely on the donations from exactly the players who you're trying to regulate. And I think that's just not sustainable, right? You need to have a certain weight that you can bring to the table. Otherwise, you, you're not going to be able to, to compete uh, or to steer the, the space that has uh, so many potential giants in it and, and sort of so much revenue potentially behind it. It's an interesting sort of tension a little bit. And like, I don't want to go this high level, but one thing that I often kind of think about a little bit is, you know, there's so much economic incentive to vertically integrate. And there's the, the it's just so, 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 so strong. And there are different like vertical integration in different sectors, like my example of the steel supply chain, has just so many less implications than vertical integration at uh, some sort of financial uh, layer of infrastructure. And it just makes it very difficult. And sometimes I wonder about crypto in general, if we do need some sort of, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. What's that? The window, the an Overton window Overton to window. shift. Yeah, an Overton window to shift um, to kind of show the market for people to wake up about the idea of mm -hmm. resiliency. And the yeah. impact that, you know, like, I think, I think it applies to MEV a little bit, mm -hmm. but I think it applies to crypto in general over, and I spend a lot of time thinking about You that mean idea. in the sense that we should be funding even more public goods than we are because it, I, th or... I think in, in the sense that like a lot of the, one way to interpret some of the design philosophies of Ethereum as an economic system is resiliency and fairness, I think are two kind of right at the core. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you view these economic systems through the lens of efficiency, then it's very difficult to compete with what exists today. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just a different set of preferences. And we are we are seeing how efficiency, when taken to its logical extreme, plays mm -hmm. out in a lot of different spaces. Um, and I just wonder, you know, once the collective value proposition says, wait, there's actually an enormous problem, you can take efficiency too far. It's like the paperclip yeah. uh, sort of hypothesis experiment. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's a point when people start to say, wait, there are actually downsides to the system. We demand some more resiliency and transparency hmm. and fairness, and then crypto wins in that sort of dynamic. Oh. You know, I wonder, I wonder if, if kind of resilience is just efficiency over time. Right. On like a longer time frame. So mm -hmm. maybe because like the most efficient systems are also the most likely to break down right? and the most resilient systems are not, they sacrifice efficiency, but they can survive for a very long time. Right. And so maybe if you get people to zoom out and take a longer time horizon, 
they automatically start to favor, uh, they start to think more about the risks and they start to favor more resilient systems over more efficient yeah. ones. It's a super interesting thread to pull, but I, I want to get your, your, um, your thoughts on kind of the, the discussion that we had around account abstraction and wallets in general. Uh, that one is, you know, there's a, like, to me, the, the innovations, um, around account abstractions are kind of twofold, uh, which is one, it abstracts away a lot of the complexity of managing your private keys, um, which I think is huge, frankly. And then the other one is it allows for gasless transactions. So in theory, you could have an app that is subsidizing the gas costs of its users. So right there is kind of a huge double whammy in terms of from the user's perspective, interacting with apps on Ethereum is that you don't have to pay gas for every little transaction that you want to do. And you don't have to worry so much about your, your private keys. So, you know, that was super interesting. And I'd love to get your, your sort of thoughts yeah. on that. I mean, I, so first of all, I thought that Matt's explanation of account abstraction was a plus. I, I thought that was oh, yeah. really good. Um, yeah. I'd never, I hadn't heard it explained in such a condensed way. Mm -hmm. Um, I would agree with you. I mean, I'm not super deep on the topic myself, but I've been a fan of, uh, smart contract wallets, um, for a long time. Um, like early state, early investor in Argent and, and because I really believe in the, in the idea of kind of, I mean, it's not even, it's not even ideological, right? With a lot of things, it's about, I prefer system A over system B because for like reasons that I have to like actually like reason about it. Right. And mm -hmm. But with the smart contract wallet, it's so, no, I'm like, I actually don't want to use an EOA wallet because I don't trust myself to like do the necessary security. Like I need the security and that kind of uh, a smart contract wallet's, wallet provides me. Otherwise, I don't feel comfortable using crypto on chain. Like mm -hmm. that's the kind of degree to which I think they are better. But so far, they have been held back by, it's like just so much more costly to use a smart contract wallet on Ethereum layer one. And you already have all of these EOAs. And so all of this uh, infrastructure is being built around EOAs. So like applications, wallets, they all kind of expect you to have an EOA and that's the concept users have. And so I, I find it so so nice that kind of you, now we can build this stuff on top of an EOA and on top of kind of infrastructure that expects an EOA that, that, that kind of combines the best of both worlds, right? That has this... Uh, backward compatibility, but it also gives you the security properties of um, a smart contract wallet. Absolutely. Um, and it's still like the the implications of this, I'm still kind of working my way through. So I'd, I'd want to be careful about like getting too over my skis and just speculating. But I think it's worth um, maybe digging in a little bit more this this season because there's all the benefits of kind of account abstraction on the wallet layer. But then we also found that it adds this whole new uh, portion of the MEV supply chain. And it also introduct, uh, introduces two new sets of actors. So one of those Matt uh, got into, uh, which is bundlers, but there's also paymasters as well. So there's just like a kind of an additional layer of complexity as well. And um, that might also be worth thinking about as a theme to pull out this season. Because almost, yeah, I agree. Almost makes me want to pivot a little bit and like do an episode on con abstraction, maybe see where uh what there is in terms of the relationship to mev i don't know if there is a lot of relationship to mev i think there might be i mean it's definitely an economic pressure on the supply chain if nothing yeah. else 
but it would be interesting to see if maybe other things become possible um, because this separation between I wasn't I want I didn't I didn't quite agree with when Matt said that um, uh, a kind of abstraction has this intent layer because ultimately you're still making a kind of pseudo transaction and uh, the way that it can be crafted into a transaction is quite limited but the way I think about intent is more broadly I guess right where somebody else actually constructs the full transaction for you but nonetheless I think uh, the, what you can do with these pseudo transactions. Um, I think that would be very interesting to explore. I, I have a feeling that you can do like a lot of things with that, that we also want to do with Swarf about programming, like basically expanding the, 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 expre the, the range of preference expression that, that users can have. Um, and it would be super interesting. So, I mean, let's see if we can find, uh, someone who has thought about this in a deep way. I agree. I agree. And that's probably a good place to end it and maybe give listeners a little bit of a tease of next episode. So just on this theme that we have of uh, increasing complexity, right? On top of all these new dimensions that we're adding to main chain MEV, there's also now obviously the implications of MEV in a, mod a world of modular scaling of L2s and potentially L3s. And uh, again, I, I might we, we've, we're having on Robert Miller and John Charbonneau uh, for the next episode to kind of talk about this. But I might also, I, I want you to weigh in as well as someone who's thought very deeply about Suave, because I think that's at kind of the heart of, of solving that challenge. Yeah, I think, I think this would be, this would, I mean, I'm looking, really looking forward to this as maybe the highlight of the season or one of the, the highlights of the season. Um, Robert, obviously, head of product at Flashbots is, the driving person behind Suave, uh, mm. implementing Suave, and and John Chabonneau, one of the most pr prolific uh, writers and, and researchers in in the MEV space, and I know both of them have thought a lot about MEV in the modular stack, and would be very interesting to explore uh, well how sequencing is going to work in in layer two, but also what this means for the MEV economics of layer one, uh, where kind of what what's going to happen to block building how Swarf works and where it sits in this future stack. And um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to this episode. This one's going to be a fun one. All right, my friend, until next week, 